Now will you notice chapter 11? And in chapter 11, we have Peter defends his ministry, and the gospel goes to Antioch. And he defends his ministry to the Gentiles. And that was pretty difficult for Simon Peter to do. Now will you notice? And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. That is, there was doubting and division. And they were saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and did eat with them. My, that was a terrible thing to do, you see, for Simon Peter. And if you had talked to Simon Peter a month before that, he would have told you it was a terrible thing to do. But now, listen to Simon Peter. And actually, this is an apology that he gives. He makes it clear he didn't want to do this, that the Spirit of God was in it all. Verse 4, But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and expounded it by order unto them, saying, Listen to him now. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descend as it had been, a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. And he was amazed at that. Upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts. And you see, they were forbidden to be eaten, and creeping things, and they were forbidden, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up. And the idea and the word is, all were suddenly drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. He showed us how he'd seen an angel, and so on. And notice how Simon Peter recounts the detail. Now, verse 16. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? Now, you see, the purpose of the tongues was to give evidence to Simon Peter that Gentiles had turned to God. Now, will you notice, verse 18, "...when they heard these things, they held their peace." Even the Judaizers had to shut their mouths now. They had nothing to say about this. This was obviously of God. "...and they glorified God, saying, "...then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life." Now, this is a great day that has come, you see. The door now has been opened to the Gentiles. And we'll see shortly that the gospel will start out to the ends of the earth. Now, verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, 
which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, the Grecians, you remember, they were Greek in language and custom, but they were Hebrews. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things come unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. Now, Antioch becomes the second center of the church. It shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, he comes up there because he finds out there's a great moving of the Spirit of God. The church in Jerusalem did. Verse 23, "...who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man." That's a wonderful thing to say about Barnabas. He was a good man. And there's no reason why a Christian shouldn't be a good man, unless he's a woman, and then should be a good woman. And full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And much people were added unto the Lord. And actually, Barnabas becomes the pastor of the church there. And he saw immediately he needed an assistant pastor, and he knew where to get a good one. Verse 25, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch. And you detect here in the Word that when he had found him, the idea is that Saul was reluctant to come. He held back. When he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And friends, I see no reason why that we should read into this something quite terrible because they're called Christians. I do not think that you have to say here it was a term of ridicule. I think they just saw these people and they said they are the followers of Christ. And since they're followers of Christ, they're Christians. They are the followers of him. And that is all right. That's a good name. And it may not have been given in derision. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. Now, notice that. There were prophets in the early church. Apostles and prophets are not needed today. There's some think they're prophets, but they're not. Verse 28, there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. And by the way... That's recorded in secular history. Verse 29, Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Notice the fraternal spirit, the bond of love that held the early church together. Now, as we come today to this twelfth chapter of Acts, we come to a period of persecution. Persecution strikes the church. And we find here that although persecution comes, the church also grows, and the Word of God is multiplied. Now, friends, that's a very wonderful thing that we have here. Now, we find, first of all, that Herod Agrippa I is the one who carries on the persecution. He's the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the one, you'll recall, 
that attempted to put the Lord Jesus to death even when he was born. And now this Herod family are an enemy of God if there ever was a family. As far as I know, there's not a one in the family that ever really turned to God. Now you have Herod Agrippa I. Now let me begin reading at chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. This man apparently to please certain ones why he began this persecution. You will recall that up to this point, the persecution has been largely from the religious rulers, the Sadducees in particular. But now it moves into the realm of government. It moves actually from religion to politics now. Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And that word vex, if I understand the word, it's not adequate to describe what really he did. He carried on a brutal, unfeeling persecution of the church. Now notice what he did. Verse 2, and it's stated so bluntly here, "...and he killed James the brother of John with a sword." Now, James becomes another martyr in the church. I don't know that he was the second martyr, but far as the record is concerned, I'm of the opinion there had been many at this time that had died for the name of the Lord Jesus. He killed James the brother of John with a sword. And because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Now, this is something that we need to note. James is slain, but Peter is miraculously preserved in all of this. Here you have, without doubt, the sovereign will of God moving in the church. Now, I'm of the opinion that there could have been those in that day that would have said, well, why in the world was James put to death and Peter permitted to live? Why did he do that? And many ask that question even today. Well, my answer to that is, this is the sovereign will of God. And he still moves like this today, friends. I've been in the ministry quite a while. I've seen the Lord reach in and take certain wonderful members out of the church by death. And then he's left others in. And why would he do that? Because if you'll ask me as pastor, I happen to know the one he took. From my viewpoint, he made a mistake. And the one he left, he sure made a mistake. I used to say this sub rosa. I'd say, I wish the Lord had asked me when he gets ready to take someone in the church... He'd ask me who to take. I could tell him, and I think I could make a better decision than he did. But may I say to you, friends, this is all in the hands of a sovereign God. And if you don't like it, I want to say this to you, and I want to say kindly. It's too bad. <laughs> too bad for you, because he's going to move this way anyway. This is the hand of a sovereign God moving in the church. He permits Herod to slay James, who apparently was sort of the head of the church in Jerusalem. And now Peter is permitted to live because he arrests him. But this was now the time of unleavened bread. Verse 4, 
when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. And the word Easter here should be Passover. It always causes a great deal of discussion, especially among those who like to make a great deal of the fact that we ought not to celebrate Christmas, we ought not to celebrate Easter, and that Easter's a pagan word and all that. Well, this should be Passover, intending after Passover to bring him forth to the people. Now, if you'll notice that he sure put him under guard, the guard is really strengthened here and enlarged, four quaternions of soldiers to keep him. Well, may I say to you, he apparently expected someone to try to deliver him. Now, notice what happened. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing. Or, you want another translation of that, but prayer was made earnestly of the church unto God for him. They didn't meet together to say the prayers. They didn't go before God and quote a grocery list. They went before God and earnestly prayed that this man, Simon Peter, be delivered. Now, heart was in the prayer. Now, notice what happens. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night was Peter sleeping between two soldiers. And how Simon Peter could sleep between two soldiers, which you remember that night at the edge of the Garden of Gethsemane, he went to sleep also. And here he goes to sleep again. I would say that Simon Peter did not have asthma. He did not have any difficulty sleeping. He just could sleep any time. And what wonderful confidence he must have had in God to be able to sleep between these two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came unto him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side, raised him up, saying, Rise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. The angel appears to him and tells him to do a very reasonable thing. Put on your shoes. Dress yourself. Nothing in the way of alarm or a flight that's made quickly. So he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and knew not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. He thought he was in the present, dreaming all this. When they were past the first and second ward, that is, they certainly had added to the guard to make sure they kept Simon Peter in prison. I think they expected something like this. You'll recall that the Lord Jesus had come forth from the grave, and that was a source of real embarrassment to them, and they're not going to let something else happen. And so they double the guard, in fact, more than that. And when they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. Now, he's got him out of danger, 
And he lets Simon Peter now go on on his own. Now, the church, remember, in Jerusalem was praying for Simon Peter. And when we say here, I should call attention to that. In verse 7, when it says, "...the angel of the Lord," it should be again, "...an angel of the Lord." The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. He's now at God's right hand in a body, glorified body. And it's not the Lord Jesus. It's an angel delivers Peter, and the prayer of the church now is definitely answered. Now, notice verse 11. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. That is, he felt like now that God had delivered him for a very definite purpose. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, that is, John Mark, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now, the church at this particular time and for about 150 years after this never had a church building. We always call the church today a building. We say the first so-and-so church is down on the corner of Maine and -and so-and-so. But actually, that's not the church. It's a building. And the church at the beginning, the body of believers, they never met in a public building. They had none of their own. They met in homes. Now, Mary, the mother of Mark, apparently she must have had a large home while the church was meeting in her home. And they were gathered together praying at that very time, praying for Simon Peter to be delivered. And now notice what happened. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken, that is, to answer the door. Her name was Rhoda. And here we have this girl. And notice what happened. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in, told how Peter stood before the gate. She forgot all about opening the gate, you see. She's so excited, she just leaves him standing at the gate. And she rushes in where they're praying. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. She says, Why, he's there at the gate. They said, You see him? She said, No, but I heard him, and I know his voice. Then said they, It is his angel. Now, that word angel is the word pneuma. It means spirit. It's his spirit. That is... It's not a guardian angel. None of us have a guardian angel. At least I don't think so. If I do, mine is way out of breath, way back of me somewhere, and I do hope he catches up. But I don't think we have a guardian angel, friends. It means it's his spirit, that he's been slain. That is exactly what they thought. Now, isn't this interesting here? The church is praying for Simon Peter to be delivered. He is delivered. And when he is, what happens? They don't believe it. (laughs) They think that he's been slain and it's his spirit. You know, that's like our prayers, is it not? This is a great comfort to me. The early church, with all of its tremendous spiritual power, did not 
believe on this occasion that Simon Peter had been delivered in answer to their prayers. And isn't that true many times of us today? When we have what we call an answer to our prayer, my, we just rejoice and act as if it's something that we did not expect at all. And you want to know something? We didn't expect it, did we? We really didn't. And yet God heard and answered our prayer. Now, they couldn't believe, therefore, that their prayers were answered. Now, will you notice, verse 15, "...and they said unto her, Thou art mad." But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It's his spirit. But Peter continued knocking. That's just like him, isn't it? Nobody's opened the gate. They're in there, not believing their prayer's been answered. One saying he's there at the gate. The others are saying, Well, it's his spirit. And Peter's about to knock the gate down, wanting in. Peter continued knocking. When they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They just couldn't believe their eyes. They didn't believe their prayers could be answered. Verse 17, But he beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. In other words, he left town. Now, here's a case. God has miraculously delivered him. God could have miraculously kept him. And I'd know today that there's some saints that would say, well, I'll just stick around. God's delivered me out of prison. He can keep me. Yes, but he expects his friends to use a great deal of common sense. And I find that there are some folk today, it's not faith they have. They're actually tempting God. Now, if God has done something wonderful for you, he expects you to use a great deal of common sense. And he expects you and me both to use common sense. Now, will you notice what happened? Verse 18 of chapter 12 of Acts. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. I'd like to call your attention to a phrase that Dr. Luke uses many times, and we'll find it again when we get to the 15th chapter. He uses what would be called a diminutive. He says, there was no small stir. What does he mean? He said there was a big stir, by the way. And then when you get over to the 15th chapter of Acts, you find that the early church, when Judaism came in, Dr. Luke again says here in Acts 15, 2, they had no small dissension. Well, what in the world does he mean? Well, he means they had a regular knockdown and drag out. They had a Donnybrook. I tell you, friends, it was really a fight that they had. But he uses that very gracious and gentle manner. Have you ever noticed? All the way through, you'll find that's one of Dr. Luke's methods. And so we find here that when the soldiers found out what had happened, here's Simon Peter gone. And look, at they had half the army there to protect and see that nobody took him away. And there was no small stir, Dr. Luke says, among the soldiers. I'll say there was no small stir. It was a big stir. 
what was become of Peter. And they began to make, I think, a house-to-house search. Now, verse 19, "...and when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death." Now, I want you to notice this man. He's cold-blooded and he's hard-hearted. That's a Herod. He had no regard for human life and even these soldiers that were guarding him without giving them a chance at all for explanation, he has them executed, that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Now, Caesarea is a resort area. It's down on the Mediterranean. Pilate enjoyed it down there. Many of the Roman rulers stayed down there. Actually, it was the Roman headquarters. Pilate did not like Jerusalem. He sure wouldn't have agreed with David. And there were others of these Romans, and they stayed down there. So Herod just beats it down to Caesarea to have a little vacation and has these men put to death. How brutal. Now let's take another look at this man, Herod. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him. And having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. That is, they did business. It would have hurt the economy of Tyre and Sidon. So they came down and made an overture to old Herod. And believe me, he's quite pompous, you see. They're all coming and bowing before him. Now notice this man, lifted up by pride. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and he made an oration unto them. Quite a speaker, by the way. He was a politician that would have got elected today, regardless of what party he had run on. Very well pleasing. Now, all of these men are little miniatures of Antichrist, friends. Remember, John said there are many Antichrists. Here's one of them. Now, notice this. And the people gave a shout, saying, It's the voice of a god and not of a man. You see, they made him a deity. And immediately the angel of the Lord, and again an angel of the Lord, smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Now, God, friends, never shares his glory. God says his glory he would not share with another. Therefore, this is very interesting. God hates this type of thing. God hates the pride of man. This man's lifted up, and they want to deify him. And he's lifted up, and God judges him. This is the judgment of God upon this man. You see, God is jealous of his glory. What a picture you have here. Now, you would think with all of this persecution, all of these things taking place, well, the poor church now... Well, probably be destroyed and disappear. Oh, no. Verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. And I'm not sure, but what this is a verse that we want to take for our Through the Bible radio program. But the word of God grew and multiplied. We have seen that since we've moved to Pasadena. We'd had a steady growth before then, but it's been phenomenal. And We'd just like to write that today, but the word of God grew and multiplied, 
And some of you know we've already used this. What a wonderful thing. Well, persecution didn't hurt the church at all. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, John Mark goes up to Antioch with him. You remember they'd brought a gift down to the church in Jerusalem. Now we've come to the end of the second period in the book of Acts when the gospel went to Judea and Samaria. Now, friends, as we come to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, we've come to another and the final major division of the book of Acts. You'll recall that we took as the key of this book, the Lord Jesus says, "...ye shall be witnesses unto me." Not the church as a corporate body, but you and you and you, the believers, the members of the body. "...ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem." Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, we saw that Jerusalem period, entirely 100% church made up of Hebrews, no Gentiles. Then it began to move out into Samaria and Judea. And now we've come to the place where it moves out officially on its way to the ends of the earth. And on the way, it passed my ancestors, and I'm sure yours. And today, you and I are beneficiaries of the fact that somebody went down the road of this world to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you and I ought to be in the business today of taking it on down beyond where we are to some who've not heard. Now, this is the final surge of the gospel beyond the boundaries of Israel. And Paul becomes now the dominant leader, and Peter disappears from the scene. God had mightily used him. But from now on, Paul will be the one that God will use. Now, here in chapters 13 and 14, you have the first missionary journey of the apostle Paul. And he begins it with Barnabas. And the first stop is the island of Cyprus, the home of Barnabas. And they cross the island of Paphos. From there, they sail to Perga in Pamphylia. Then they enter the interior of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, and go into what was known then as the Galatian country. Now, if you have our notes and outlines, and the reason I've urged you to write in and ask for a copy. If you do not have a copy, it means you're not on our mailing list. But if you are on our mailing list, you have a copy. And you will find here that in this first missionary journey, as well as the others, we have a map and the chart where Paul went from Salamis over to Paphos and then over to Perga, up to Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, and Derby, and then back to Italia, and then back to Antioch. Now, I think you'll find it extremely helpful if you have our notes and outlines through this section, so we urge you to write in and ask for them. Now, let's begin this journey with Paul and with Barnabas. Now, will you notice, I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon 
that was called Niger, and Lucius, and Cyrene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Now you'll notice as they begin their ministry that we have here, it's Barnabas and Saul. But they will not be very far in the first missionary journey until Saul's name is changed to Paul, And it's not Barnabas and Paul, but it's Paul and Barnabas, because he becomes now the leader and the spokesman for the group. Now, will you notice that as we go along, verse 3, "...and when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away." Now, these men are set aside as missionaries. Do you notice the church that sent them forth? into the world. It was not the church in Jerusalem. I say it to you very candidly, the church in Jerusalem was not a missionary church. Church in Antioch was. And now they send forth these two men. And when they fasted and prayed, it was because of their earnestness and their desire for the will of God. They laid their hands on them for the simple reason that I've always, when we sent missionaries forth, have put our hands on their head. Why? We are not imparting anything to them. We may give them a disease germ, but that's all we could transfer by laying on of hands. Laying on of hands indicates that they'd be partners with us in the enterprise of getting the Word of God out. Now, that's the reason the church in Antioch. These men are our representatives. They are partners with us. They will stay at home and stand back of these men as they go out. Now, notice verse 4. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, departed under Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. They went down to the seacoast town of Seleucia, But the important thing is they're sent forth by the Holy Spirit. Now, they were led by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, verse 5, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. John Mark was along with him, you see. Now, we are told here that Paul adopts a method that he followed, as far as I can tell, through his entire ministry. He always used the Jewish synagogue as the springboard from which he preached the gospel. A great many do not seem to recognize that at all. A friend of mine was criticized for going and speaking in a synagogue. And this man preached the gospel, I can assure you. And he was criticized for it. And I said to the critic, well, did you know that's where Paul always went? To the synagogue. And you're going to find fault with this, brother. You better find fault with Paul because he really overdid it because he never went to a place for what he didn't begin there. That was proper for him, of course. Now, will you notice that they were at Salamis. They preached the word. Verse 6, And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew's name was Bar-Jesus. Apparently, they didn't have very much success at Salamis. No record is given there. They had no 
fruit there, apparently. Now they cross over the island to the other end of the island, to Paphos, and they encounter this opposition, satanic opposition. He's a sorcerer, and he had a tremendous influence on the Roman deputy, the governor of that island, Sergius Paulus. Notice verse 7, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. And you know now it's Barnabas and Saul. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. This is satanic opposition, and this man had the governor under his influence. There are a great many rulers today that are in cults under the influence of all kinds of cultism that's in opposition to the Word of God and in opposition to the gospel. Now, notice verse 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, this now is where his name was changed. He's called Paul. And the question arises, why was he called Paul? Well, Paul means small. Some think he took it as an act of humility, and he didn't want to bear the proud name of Saul. I'm of the opinion he probably took it after the name of the governor there, Sergius Paulus was his name. He was his first convert, you see. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, fell with the Holy Spirit, set his eyes on him, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Now, Paul was actually a very mild man in many ways. But I tell you, when he encountered this kind of opposition and that which was actually satanic teaching, he denounced it with all of his being. And I think we ought to do the same today. Verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season." And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Well, he was in spiritual darkness. Now he's put in physical darkness. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now, again, I call your attention that Paul the apostle has the sign gifts of an apostle. Now, when he came over there, he didn't have a New Testament to turn to and preach to them from the epistle to the Romans, because he hadn't even written it yet. And he didn't have the gospel of John, because John hadn't written it yet. So what'll be his authority? Sign gifts. Now, today, John says, if any come to you not having the doctrine, not having the New Testament teaching, not having the Word of God, you're not to receive them. That's the test today. But you see, Paul has these gifts. Now, I think this sorcerer had been able to do quite a few fancy tricks, by the way. I'm of the opinion that in that day, that false prophet like this could do healing. That is, to a certain degree, I'm of the opinion that he could perform quite a few miracles, satanic, of course. But you see, Paul now absolutely dominates him 
by the fact that he's bringing to him the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And Sergius Paulus now, he comes into the light. He's been in spiritual darkness, and he's astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Verse 13, Now when Paul and his company loose from Paphos, they came to Pergon, Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, that's all that Dr. Luke says. Dr. Luke is very mild and modest, and at this time, he doesn't issue a tirade against John Mark. But we're going to find a little later that what happened was that John Mark had a yellow streak up and down his back, and he turned and ran home to Mommy. Remember, she's a prominent member in the church in Jerusalem, and her home was the place where the church met. And this young man, he's going home. When he got there and looked into the interior of Asia Minor and saw the paganism and the dangers that were there, he decided he hadn't been called as a missionary, and he heads in another direction, and that's for home. So that later on, Paul, we'll see, won't take John Mark with him. In fact, he and Barnabas, they disagreed violently on this, and they separated. And Paul went one way, and Barnabas went another way. Now, Paul was wrong, though, about John Mark. God didn't throw him overboard because of this one failure. And thank God he doesn't throw us overboard because of one failure. He gave this man another chance, and later on it was Paul himself. And Paul was big enough to admit when he's wrong was later on in his swan song, Second Timothy. He said to Timothy, bring John Mark with you. He is profitable to me for the ministry. He made good. God always gives us a second chance. But all we're told here that John Mark departing from them, he returned to Jerusalem. He went home. Now these men head for the interior, Paul and Barnabas. Now notice, Verse 14, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. That's the method of Paul, you see. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. This, you see, was the custom of that day, because the Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and many of them that had been scattered were in these cities, and synagogues were established, and they would have visitors that would come from Jerusalem. Well, they wanted word from the religious center, and they would always call on a visitor to get up and say something. Well, this always afforded a marvelous opportunity for the Apostle Paul. And he certainly takes advantage of it here. Now, I believe that this sermon that Paul gave in Antioch of Pisidia is one of the great sermons that he ever preached. And yet, it's generally passed by today, and it's one of his first. And I want you to notice this. He preaches now in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, after the reading of the law, they now come to that part. They say to you, brethren of visitors, would you like to say something? Well, Paul wanted to say something, that is for sure. Actually, that's the reason he's there. Now, notice this sermon, beginning with verse 16. Then Paul stood up 
and beckoning with his hands, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Apparently, there were some visitors there, probably some Gentiles, proselytes, maybe. Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. Now, what is Paul doing? Well, he's beginning here to do the same thing Stephen did before the Sanhedrin. He recounts their history as a nation. Now notice as he moves on, verse 21, "...and afterward they desired a king. God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed, God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now he's presenting the person of Jesus Christ to them. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now these people apparently had heard of John the Baptist. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Now he's getting down to the nitty-gritty. Will you listen to him? For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. Now, Paul's recounting, you see, the history. And he says all this was in fulfillment of prophecy. And they were fulfilling the very prophets, and at the same time they were reading them, apparently not knowing what they read. Verse 28, And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. When they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. Now, you see, every sermon that's preached in the New Testament had as the very core of it, the very center of it, the very heart of it, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. That is the message. Simon Peter preached it, and now Paul the Apostle preached it. 
Don't tell me these two men disagreed. They didn't. Verse 30, "...but God raised him from the dead." Verse 31, "...and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings." how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And that verse in the second psalm does not refer to the birth of Christ. It refers to the resurrection of Christ when he says, This day have I begotten thee, not in the virgin birth, but actually in the resurrection from the dead. Now, as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said, On this wise I'll give you the sure mercies of David. Notice how Paul enlarges upon the resurrection. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. Same thing you remember Simon Peter said on the day of Pentecost. For David, after he'd served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, was laid unto his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren. Now he's pinning this thing down. He is now asking them actually for a decision to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, will you notice? And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Behold, ye despise us and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Now when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Gentiles heard about it. They said, we'd like to hear this message. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now we are told on the next Sabbath, the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, as a result, there was really a time of great commotion because the many of the leading religious rulers in the synagogue opposed Paul and Barnabas. Now notice verse 46, "...then Paul and Barnabas..." It's no longer Barnabas and Paul, and they stand up now, and they declare the word of God, and he says, "...it should be spoken to you first, but now he's going to the Gentiles." And what happened? Well, they're run out of town. They are forced to lead town, verse 51, "...but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit." My friends, we are following Paul on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. We have just lost John Mark. He turned and ran home to Mama. He'll make good, but thank God, God always gives us a second chance. I do not know about you. I'm working on my hundredth and something chance. He's been so good to me down through the years and given me chance after chance. All he wants is for you to come back and he'll let you start over again. And it's wonderful 
to have a heavenly Father and a God such as we have today. But now Barnabas and Paul, they face this impenetrable paganism of Galatia. I personally believe that the Galatian field was the hardest mission field that Paul ever went into. I do not think that any other place was as difficult. You only have to read the epistle to the Galatians to discover that, because that's the harshest epistle Paul wrote. And he wrote it to those who had a spiritual bent in the wrong direction, and they were constantly going off. He visited these churches more than any other. Let me give you just this brief background of the Galatian country that Paul is entering right now. The people for whom the province was named, they were Gauls, a Celtic tribe from the same stock which inhabited France. In the 4th century B.C., they invaded the Roman Empire and they sacked Rome. Later, they crossed into Greece and captured Delphi in 280 B.C. And at the invitation of Decomedes, the first king of Bithynia, they crossed over into Asia Minor to help him in a civil war. They were a warlike people and soon established themselves in Asia Minor. In 189 B.C., they were made subjects to the Roman Empire, and they became a province. Their boundaries varied, and for many years they retained their own customs and language. They were blonde Orientals. The churches Paul established here on his first missionary journey were included at one time in the territory of Galatia, and this is the name which Paul would normally give to these churches. Now, these Gallic Celts had much of the same temperament and characteristics of the American people today. Most of us came out of that same stock in Europe and the British Isles. And there's a great similarity. Caesar had this to say of them. He said, "...the infirmity of the Gauls is..." that they are fickle in their resolves, fond of change, and not to be trusted. And another writer of that period wrote, they are frank, impetuous, impressible, eminently intelligent, fond of show, but extremely inconstant, the fruit of excessive vanity. And I want to talk about them quite a bit when we get to the epistle to the Galatians, because Paul wrote to them a very harsh letter, because they deserve that letter. We are a people like that. That's the reason all the cults and isms began in this country. Practically every one of them, its origin is here in this country. We're a fickle people. One day we follow this leader, and the next the other. And it's amazing when you follow these polls that they have today, of candidates or of different individuals to see their popularity. And you know they can make one statement or a slip of the tongue, and the entire population will shift from them to somebody else. I say something's wrong with us today, 
with all of us. Well, we're very much like these people. That makes this section very interesting. And friends, that's the reason that Martin Luther used the epistle to the Galatians for the Reformation, because it was written to folk just like we are. And that's the reason the epistle to the Galatians is going to mean a great deal to us when we get to it. Now we're moving into that area where the blonde Orientals live, the first Americans, let's say. All right, we're reading now verse 1 of chapter 14. "...came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed." Now, if you have our notes, you know that I have a map in which we have all of Paul's missionary journeys. And you'll notice that when he crossed over from the island of Cyprus, they landed in Perga of Pamphylia, and then they began to move up into this country to Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. These are the cities of Galatia, and you see them more or less in the heartland of Asia Minor. Now, will you note here, verse 2, "...but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony under the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands." But the multitude of the city was divided, and part helped with the Jews, and part with the apostles. Now, they brought quite a division in the city. You must remember Paul and Barnabas themselves were Jews. Paul always used the synagogue as the springboard to get to the Gentiles. And this is the very beginning of his ministry, and you see that he's using that method. Verse 5, when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled under Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And they preach the gospel there. Now, you will notice that they didn't get a very good reception in Iconium. And so they took off for Lystra and Derby. And actually, they had practically no ministry at Iconium at first. Now they are moving from one place to another. And we are in the city of Lystra now, verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of man. 
Now, do you notice the reception of Paul and Barnabas and also the reaction to them? Now, first of all, let me say that Paul and Barnabas, they had the gifts of an apostle. They were the sign gifts. They came into these places. They had no New Testament. All they had was a message of the gospel. And as you can see, they had difficulty in getting this message received. And so they were given these gifts. Now, they were needed then. They're not needed today. The church has been established for 1,900 years. The Word of God is in our midst today. And it's what's in the Word of God, and it's not what men do today. If we could only get people to do that. I played golf down in the desert with a man. They had me, I think, play with him purposely. He's a very affable man and a very generous man, very big-hearted man, but he's unsaved. A man who very candidly, very openly told me that he was chasing around. And I attempted to talk with him about the gospel. He knew the facts of the gospel as well as I do. And did you know something else? He believed them. He said, I believe Jesus died. And he said, I believe if I'd trust him, he'd save me. He said, I believe that. Well, I said, why don't you do it? And then he began to mention to me a certain man whose lives, you see, didn't measure up. And I said to him, for goodness sakes, get your eyes off of man. I said, in the first century, they performed miracles, and men got their eyes on them, and they had to take them off of them and get them on the book. I said, get your eyes off on the Word of God and what God says today. That's the thing that's important. And after all, it's a personal relationship between you and God. And these third parties you're mentioning won't even enter into it when you stand before him someday. The question will be your personal relationship to Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. Go to the Word of God. Well, I'll be very frank with you. I didn't get very far with him, but I gave him a new approach. He said he'd never heard it that way before. And he said he thought maybe he'd try that. And I said, well, don't look at Christians. They all have feet of clay. And I said, that is the real problem. These men are looking now to Paul and Barnabas. And notice what they did when they healed this man. The man had faith. He trusted Paul and Barnabas. They're pagan heathen people in that area, you see. And Paul said, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lacaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of man. Now, they are really pagans, aren't they? They are pagans. But notice how fickle they are. They call Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, or Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. Now, you see, Paul is definitely taking the lead. Here they are. They want to make them gods. They bring garlands to put around their necks, on their heads, and now they're ready to worship them. Fickle? Does that remind you of anybody else? In America, one year... It'll be this baseball player, that football player, this politician, that politician. But next year, they are forgotten in somebody else that's new. And preachers are treated that way also. 
My, you can preach the Word of God. They say, my, it's wonderful. One day, next day, they want to crucify you. Look what's happened now to Paul and Barnabas. Verse 13, Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they take attention from themselves. They are absolutely not only startled and amazed that these people want to worship them, but they're shocked by it, and they said, we are human beings just like you are. Remember, Peter did that before this man Cornelius. He said when he bowed down before him, these people are pagan. He says, stand up, don't fall down before me. And my friends, we ought not to fall down before any man. A Christian is not to be obsequious or shine the shoes of anybody else or let me change that a little. It's all right to shine the shoes, I guess. But how about licking their shoes? There are some men whose tongues are black with licking the shoes of some men. And unfortunately, there are those in Christian work that are like that today. Oh, how tragic it is. You see, these people are just like we are today. They are that type individuals. Now notice... Paul continues on. He's pointing them to the living God. I'm reading verse 17 now, chapter 14 of Acts. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, you see, he's presenting them the fact of a living God who is the Creator and not one of these heathen, pagan Idols are the mythology of the Greeks. Verse 18, And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people, that they had done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he'd been dead. Now, friends, I'm amazed at this. One day they're ready to worship them. The next day they stone Paul to death. Isn't that like our nation today? We Americans are the same way. Follow fads. One time you see them with a hula hoop. And look at the dress today that we have adopted. My, I tell you, we're faddists in this country. Now they stone Paul and it says... They drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. What do you think? I'll tell you what I think. I think he was dead. Paul tells of an experience that he had. He said, I knew a man once. Tells about that over in 2 Corinthians. He says that man, he says, was caught up to heaven, the third heaven. He said, I don't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. I can't tell. God knoweth. And who was that man? Well, it was Paul, because he says down verse 7, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, 
Now, I'll talk about that in a rather exhaustive manner when we get to 2 Corinthians. But, friends, may I say to you, I believe that this man Paul was left dead. I don't think that crowd would have left him half dead. I think they left him dead. They supposed he was dead. And God raised him from the dead. And this man is to experience, as he tells the Galatians, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And this is what he had sowed, and this is what he reaped, friends. He had stood at the stoning of Stephen. Or somebody says he's converted. Yes, but when you sow it, friends, you're going to reap it. I don't care what it is. And so later on, why, the same thing happened to him that happened to Stephen. What you sow, you'll reap. Now, will you notice here that this is miraculous? Because those stones left the man brutally marred, but now he's raised up. And you'll notice how be it as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up, came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. And he wouldn't have departed, friends, if this had been normal. This is miraculous. He's been raised from the dead. Verse 21 And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. And may I say to you, this is the gift of an apostle, this type of thing, being raised from the dead, healing this man. Now, I'll get mean letters as I did when I referred to this before. The meanest letter I ever got was from some person who claimed that he had seen someone raised from the dead. Well, I haven't seen him. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that word doesn't get around very well today, that somebody being raised from the dead, because they're not raised from the dead. Now, let's move on here, verse 20. How be it, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up. Now they proceed to Derby. If you follow in our map, you can see that we're moving through the Galatian country. Now, when they had preached the gospel in that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra. Now, if you'll notice from the map that we have supplied you that Derby was, shall we say, the pivotal point. It was the end of the line. At Derby, he turns now. He goes back, actually, to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and then makes the return. Now, will you notice verse 24? After they had passed through Pisidia... They came to Pamphylia, and these are provinces that are in that area. And when they had preached their word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and Italia's on the seacoast, and they sailed from there, and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfill. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith under the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Now you will notice that Paul comes back to Antioch with Barnabas, and they give a report of the work, because the church there had sent them out. And they revealed that God now had definitely opened the door of the gospel to Gentiles, because now you're having churches that are apparently not even partially Israel and Gentile, 
but 100% Gentile churches. Up to this point, the gospel started out 100% Hebrew, 100% Israel, then partially Gentile, and then more and more now, the gospel is definitely going to the Gentiles.